Inside the Pile on the podcast here, Chuck Zada and Mark Schofield, your hosts, as always. And we have a full show today to break down all of the Week 13 action on a week that had uh, one upset pretty unexpected with New England going down to Philadelphia, as well as our last remaining unbeaten team coming through with a tough win in the clutch with the Carolina Panthers taking down the New Orleans Saints. And I do want to welcome in Mark Schofield here. Mark, I trust you had a happy, healthy, and safe weekend? Had a safe weekend, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty well. And once again, we we come to another podcast, and there is still no singing at the beginning, unfortunately. No no movement on that front, people. Just, you know, make sure you tweet at Adele. You know, we got to get Chuck to sing here, friends. I I would love to sing, but unfortunately, I don't think it's going to happen. So... As we continue to head into this season, we've been we've been covering a couple storylines for really the last few weeks as these have become the big stories in the NFL this season. And and Mark, I think it makes sense to start off with the Carolina Panthers still undefeated 12 and 0 now on the season. Yeah, they they look great right now. I mean, they, you know, like you mentioned at the outset, nice come from behind victory on the road against a divisional opponent against New Orleans. Granted, the Saints haven't had the best of seasons here. They've made changes defensively, getting rid of the defensive coordinator. But Cam Newton continues to impress. I mean, the two touchdowns that they had in the fourth quarter, uh, one to Ted Ginn on a deep over route against cover two that – you know, they got the it was very similar to a play that we talked about earlier that the Cardinals scored a long touchdown on where, you know, kind of a safety gets caught looking at one route and doesn't notice the deep over route behind him. You know, nice execution and design there. But I love the the game winning touchdown pass that Newton threw to Cotchery. Uh, takes a snap. He's opening up to his left. He wants to throw quickly to the out and up route from Ted Ginn, but that's covered well. Um, so he then peels back to the middle of the field and by opening it up to the left there and cover one, the defense, it moves the safety, Jerry's bird, to that sideline. He takes off screaming towards that route. So Newton's patient, works through his progressions. There was a beautiful ball in that post route. Contrary to using the Dino stem, something we talked about last yep. week. Game winning touchdown, very impressive performance. What did you look at and what did you take away from that game? Well, what I find so amazing about what Cam Newton is doing right now is they, they do have a strong running game. Jonathan Stewart, I think, has been capable for them in the running game. They actually ended up with, uh, in total, about 175 yards rushing in this game. Newton accounting for 49 of them, Stewart for 82 of them as the lead back. But what I find amazing is I continue to look at the Carolina receiving core. And I go and I look at, for the, from the last game, Greg Olson. Okay, Greg Olson I know is a, is a very good tight end. He's one of, I don't want to put him in, in that truly top category, but I put him in, he's a very, very good tight end. But you look at the rest of the weapons that are around him. You go down the line, Ted Ginn, who is, is pretty much, you know, realistically, on kind of his last legs. He doesn't have a ton of time left in the NFL necessarily. Ed Dixon, Jericho Cotri, a lot of guys who have bounced around different teams and Cam Newton, you know, there's been a lot of people that have talked because he has stats that don't necessarily match up with the Drew Breeses of the world or the Tom Brady's of the world, that he's not that good of a quarterback. And I continue to see that he's able to make plays for his team when he needs to. Doesn't always do it in a flashy way, but he is always able to come through and make that play. So I, I just I continue to be impressed by what Cam Newton is doing. His decision making, I think, has been phenomenal this year. I think so. And what he's doing, he's putting his team in a position to win week after week. You know, they're not, you know, they're not struggling when the times when they struggle, it's not fully because of him. It's not fully on his shoulders. 
But he puts that team in a position to win. And, you know, this wasn't the first play, the, the touchdown I just talked about, the game-winning touchdown, where he was able to influence a defense with his eyes, with his field of vision. And that's, you know, a trait that he wasn't asked to do a lot when he was Auburn, when he was at Auburn. But he's displaying it now. And it's really great to see as somebody who likes to study quarterbacks, how he's developed as a passer this year, working out of the pocket, working through progressions. It's been really nice to see. It speaks, you know, to the work that they're doing at the coaching level, getting him ready. And it speaks to how the chance they have to go far in the playoffs as we get here, you know, now in December, they've clinched a playoff berth and, you know, the future looks bright for that team this year. The other thing that I like about Newton is just from a ball security perspective, he's a guy that had fumbled 26 times over his first four years, over six times a season on average. He's on pace this year to only fumble four times, so he's he's taking better care of the ball and I think starting to understand a little bit more about that responsibility here. He's, he's not quite... Uh, in terms of the, the rushing yards, he's not putting up the yards per carry that he used to, which I almost think it's just you're, you're seeing him a little more instead of maybe trying to go for that extra yard or tucking it down more often, he's taking better care of the ball too in order to keep his team in the game. That's a great point, and it, you know, it gets to kind of one of the tough parts of playing the quarterback position, which is kind of maintaining aggression, you know, either sometimes in the vertical passing game when you try to squeeze a throw into a tight window, you have to balance that with taking a check down, playing a little bit more conservative, taking care of the football. Well, when you're a quarterback that uses the legs as well, like Cam Newton does, you've got to do the same thing when you're carrying the football. You might want to squeeze out an extra yard or two, maybe, you know, lead into contact a little bit or stretch the ball out but you can fumble the ball away. So he's done a good job, like you pointed out, of dialing that back a bit and continuing to keep his you know, his team in position to win. Yeah, and the Panthers, you look at the rest of their schedule here, and it's not necessarily the most challenging schedule out there. You talk about you have Atlanta at home. That, that Falcons team has really fallen off in the last several weeks. You have a Giants team going up to uh, New York, which it's always a little difficult to play there, and the Giants are such an up-and-down team that that could be a challenge. You've got the Falcons on the road then, and then an improving Buccaneers team. So you look at that, and, and I almost say maybe that Buccaneers team has the best chance of knocking that, them off in that Week 17 tilt. I think so. And, you know, we haven't heard it yet, but we're getting to that point where we're going to start to hear, how does Ron Rivera play this down the stretch? I mean, we heard it in seasons past, you know, when the Broncos were looking to go undefeated, when the Patriots were looking to go undefeated. What do you do if you're Ron Rivera and you've got first round, you know, you've obviously got a playoff berth that they just clinched. If you've got a chance, if you've already secured home field advantage, do you send everybody out there week 17 trying to go undefeated? Do you rest guys? How do you play it? So that might also determine you know, what happens in that Week 17 matchup. But, yeah, looking at their schedule, that's probably the toughest game they've got left. Yep, yep, absolutely. So let's spin over to the AFC East now, a New England team that coming off their loss to the Broncos, I think you and I and a lot of other people said, look, they're depleted, but they played a tough team and still came pretty close to pulling it out. Then goes, and, and not in all phases necessarily, but in particular on special teams really lays a stinker against the Eagles on Sunday. Yeah, you were there scouting that game for uh, Inside the Parlon, and you probably took a lot of material away for your writing this week from that game. Yeah, and, and I want to focus on two key plays, actually. And a lot of people have been pointing to the onsides kick at the end of the game or the pooch kick uh, towards the uh, in, in the first half in the second quarter. 
What I really think were the two key plays in this game were the blocked punt at the end of the first half that led directly to a touchdown, ended up scoring right on the recovery, and then the punt return for a touchdown by Darren Sproles. The punt block in particular kind of – you know, it's, Yeah, it's, what it's, happened there? So I got I got to give Philly's special teams credit. They ran an outstanding scheme. What they did here is they had eight men lined up along the line of scrimmage, and in the position that would typically be, I guess, kind of two from one one position in from the outside, they had both of those guys fire first and twist going to the outside. And what it did is it took the tackles wide right off the bat, so it opened up lanes right in those B gaps for rushers. What happened then, and I don't know exactly whether it was someone didn't hear the correct call or someone just forgot how to count properly and forgot their responsibilities, but Geno Grissom, who was the left guard for the Patriots punt block, went left when he should have gone right and essentially ends up double-teaming a guy with Joe Cardona, the Patriots long snapper. Because of that, you had a free release coming right through there. Easy, easy block. But it, it was a very, very good design by the Eagles. I have to give credit there. You mentioned somebody might not have counted properly. What do you mean by that? So when we're talking about uh, punt protection, the way that you typically assign it is you want to protect from the inside out because those interior gaps give the most direct route to a punter. So what you typically do is the personal protector, in this case Nate Ebner, will tell the center, the long snapper, which direction he should be going and where to start counting. So the long snapper, Joe Cardona, says, okay, if the personal protector tells me I'm going right, I get the guy to my right shoulder, count his number, the guy outside me goes out from there, so you make sure you have those interior gaps protected. Unfortunately, you had a a miscommunication somewhere there on the left side of the line, and that's exactly where the uh, pressure came from. So what happened on that punt return? Punt return, I think, is just a situation I have to look. The Patriots got a little bit stacked up in coverage there. It was, you know, and, and frankly, Ryan Allen, who, look, we I know we make fun of punters for tackling all the time, has to at least force Sproles to the sideline instead of giving him a cutback to the interior there. So I think from my perspective – couple different things that fell apart on that play. The coverage was a little stacked up. You also did have, I think, a poor angle taken by Allen in order to wall off Sproles. And those were the two big things uh, that I think really were the main cause of that punt return. And that's, again, two plays. You gave up 14 points there, another touchdown on a pick six, 21 points. The Patriots' defense only gave up 14. It wasn't a bad effort from them. It was special teams in that pick six that let them down. So... What I do want to do now is welcome in our first guest of the show. We are now joined by Aaron Nagler. You can follow him on Twitter, at Aaron Nagler. He is an NFL analyst and video producer for Sports Illustrated and FanDuel, also the co-founder of Cheesehead.tv. And Aaron, I appreciate you joining us today. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Aaron, I want to talk to you about uh, last week's Packers game to start because I'm sure that for about 59 minutes of it, Packers fans out there were probably saying, oh, good, here we go again, two losses to the Lions this year, and then something beautiful happened. Yeah, yeah, something certainly happened, all right. Um, the first half was an abomination, there's no doubt about it, and it was it was very hard to watch. The guys themselves will tell you that, uh, you know, it was kind of surreal and that nothing at all on offense was working, but you flipped around on the defensive side of the ball. The defense, you know, after some hits early they really kind of coalesced and kept them in that game the only reason Aaron Rodgers and company were able to pull off the theatrics at the end is because of the Packers defense which 
let's face it, is probably the only part of that team that is playing with any consistency. And even they have been victimized a few times this year. But the defensive effort is really what's not being talked about in regards to that game. And that's what really kept them in it and ultimately helped them win. Aaron, on that defensive side of the ball, there's a guy that you've been talking about a lot this season, and that's Mark Daniels. How important has he been to that Packers defense? Yeah, he's. It's funny too because he's, uh, you know, he's coming up on his last year and he's angling for a new contract. And so there, I think there's probably a little bit of an element where, yeah, he's playing for that money, but you see it down in and down out. It shows up on tape every week. He's a disruptor. He's a guy who, more often than not, beats the guy in front of him. He causes havoc and. Even when he's a little maybe overmatched, he still finds a way to maybe not you know get to the ball carrier, but definitely affect the ball carrier, uh, and that's what you want up there. Those guys they're so important, and we you know rarely hear about them if their name isn't JJ Watt. But uh, he's definitely an integral part to what they're doing. And you got to think Ted Thompson will do everything he can to keep him around. Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm a huge fan of what you do on Vine, but well, actually, let me ask you this. How big is your Vine account at this point? It's massive, isn't it? <laughs> uh, you know, I don't know. I literally never look. I just kind of cut things up that I, that interest me, um, and people seem to like it. It's funny. I've, I get, I think, a better response out of my Vines than I do my proper videos, so I think I just need to kind of refocus my purpose here because, yeah, uh, yeah people seem to really like it, but I don't really keep track of anything i don't look at the comments i don't look at the numbers i just if i like something and i kind of want to share it i'll i'll do that um it's just a great tool it's a great way to kind of like you know just show people you know things they may have missed or things they may not have paid attention to live during the game and it's not necessarily i mean there are a million people on on twitter and the internet who can tell you about football the x's and o's you know the the down in down out stuff than I can. I mean, I know my way around the terminology and I know my way around the game, but I am by no means, you know, a, 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 a X's and O's expert. And I don't pretend to be, but I like to think I know how to watch the game and I know to, how to find things that maybe people miss or maybe people aren't aware of that kind of illuminate, you know, the reason things might happen or something interesting that they just may not be aware of because they're watching the ball or they're watching the score or whatever. And like I said, people seem to really enjoy it, and I I, I enjoy doing it. So it's just nice to uh, nice to have a positive response from something for a change on uh, Twitter and the Internet. Aaron, I want to dig into that a little bit because you mentioned that a lot of people don't necessarily know the right way to watch football in order to pick up all of the things that they're that really are going on. And look, just like, you know, everyone probably looks at a lot of the big names out there on Twitter or a lot of writers and says, "Okay, those guys have always been good, but in your own development, what was what was the key thing for you that you really figured out, okay, this is what I need to be doing more of as opposed to something else?" Now, that's a really interesting question. Um I think more than anything you know, I think we all come to this from a place where we've all been watching the game pretty much all our lives. I mean, I know I have. My earliest memory in my life is my grandfather taking me to Lambeau Field when I was three years old. And that's how long I've been watching. I'm 42 years old now. So I've been watching football pretty much my entire life. So you know the game. I mean, we all know the game. And we all are obsessed with it. And we all love it. I think it was a, a very – it's funny because I think there was a very clear point where I remember I had started my blog and I started writing about football and I was very cavalier. I was very much, I know what I'm talking about and I, you know, have no problem expressing my opinion. 
And I think that's true of most people when they start out. But I do remember specifically there was a time when I was at the Combine and I talked to a coach for the Packers who had read something that I had written. And he went on to explain all the different reasons that I was wrong, all the different things that I didn't take into account because I didn't know about it and because I didn't, you know, I couldn't know about it. And it was a real eye-opening moment. And I, you know, I've never forgotten it. And I'm very appreciative of it. And it's funny because I think a lot of people who start out blogging or tweeting or vining or whatever, or even cutting up film and then posting about it. And these are people, you know, who are really good at what they do and they have jobs and they're, they're, they're great. But even now I see people who in their film breakdowns and in their study of the game, they, they still make proclamations about things that there are so many variables in the game and on each in every play down in and down out. There are so many variables that we have no way of knowing. We have no way of accounting for it, even with all the analytics, even with every, all the ways we've come up with to kind of quantify things that are happening on the football field. There's still so much that we don't know, can't know, and will never know. So to me, that has been kind of the journey and the biggest adjustment that I've made throughout my time covering the game because we still all love it. We still all love kind of breaking it down. But more than anything, it's knowing that you don't, that there's so much that you don't know and you can't know, and remembering that when you're doing your breakdown and your analysis. And do you think that's kind of a, just a natural, almost byproduct of, you know, when somebody's digging into a particular play and they, you know, they see a, you know, a route, a scheme or something and they start writing about it? It's so easy to just forget that, you know, there's 22 guys on the field that have heard, you know, multitudes of things from their position coaches going into that game, going into that moment, that there's so much context and almost a 30,000 foot level that when you're focused on the 10 foot level, you just miss it and forget about it. Because that's something that, you know, I do those breakdowns and sometimes it's you just forget everything that builds up to that one moment. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that was a great kind of back and forth between Doug Farrar with Sports Illustrated and Evan Mathis last year where Doug had written something about a block that he had made and something he should have done or was supposed to do, et cetera. And Evan was great, actually, and responded, I think, on Twitter at first, and then they did a post about it at SI, just about you know all the things that Evan was having to deal with on that play and it included information he had gotten from his coach, you know, information that he had gotten in regards to the scheme that they did differently than maybe you know traditionally or things that we're used to um, having read about the game, having played the game, having coached the game, et cetera. And that, to me, was like quintessential, the kind of thing I'm talking about here in regards to there's just so much information that we're not privy to. So, yeah, I think it's interesting. We do, like I said, I know it comes from a good place. Uh, I know we all you know, love, like I said, we all love the game. Uh, but that's the thing more than anything else that I think kind of gets lost sometimes in our fervor and you know we're breaking down every play like it's a fruiter film and it, it's just it, sometimes you just have to sit back and laugh but it's uh yeah no there's a billion different ways to look at things and the, the more uh, the longer i do this the more i realize i don't know and the more i realize reaching out to people and talking to people and talking to guys who you know for whatever reason are in the place where they have played in the league or they they've played you know college football and they are open and receptive to speaking to you about it and open to like, you know, talking about their experiences. That to me is the greatest part. That's the greatest part of covering the league is when you talk to guys who've been there and done it. And now they're open to talking about it and teaching you because goodness knows we all could learn, continue to learn. 
for as long as we uh, as long as we're doing this. Definitely. And Aaron, one last question just before I let you go. I'm going to take us back now to uh, the Packers and kind of what to expect here. Four games left mm-hmm. in the Packers season. On offense, what do they need to do in order to get that engine going again? Yeah, well, I thought the, the you know kind of the prescription was pretty clear heading into Detroit that they needed to lean on the running game, and then they go and they get the shotgun and they, they limit Eddie Lacy's carries and they kind of do everything backwards. And to me, it's pretty simple. They need to get Aaron Rodgers in a rhythm. And I kind of went on a rant about this two weeks ago on my show. Uh, about their need to, you know, Mike McCarthy is calling, is still having Tom Clements to call the offense and designing a game plan as if he's got 2014 MVP Aaron Rodgers under center, and he doesn't. And, you know, Rodgers made an amazing throw to win that game and made some great throws, uh, in, you know, down in and down out the last couple of weeks. But overall, since the bye week especially, he's not playing very well. And I think, you know, there's lots of factors that go into that, but his play caller, his game planner his head coach needs to help him he needs to help him with some you know isolation plays where he's got a very easy read early on give him a couple of those plays where you know give him an easy completion treat him like he's you know matt flynn or uh rock osweiler in denver you know give him some some easy stuff early to get him into a rhythm because right now he's being asked to direct a spread passing attack with a bunch of receivers who we all see are having trouble getting open, and B, that he doesn't trust. Uh, so I just think that, to me, is the number one thing that needs to happen. I'm dubious as to whether that is going to happen, because it really seems McCarthy is the most stubborn guy in the world and is not going to make that kind of adjustment. He has his offense, he has the game plan, he has the idea of what he, he thinks this offense should be, and it doesn't seem like he's going to be deviating that from that course anytime soon. Outstanding. Well, Aaron, I appreciate you coming on with us today. Thanks again for taking the time with us. Absolutely. Thanks a lot for having me. Aaron Nagler from Sports Illustrated and FanDuel, also the co-founder of Cheesehead.tv. You can follow him on Twitter, at Aaron Nagler. And, Mark, it's interesting because we've talked about Aaron Rodgers quite a bit on, on our, our podcast over the course of the year. And, you know, it's, it's very clear that this isn't necessarily the exact same quarterback that we've seen for the last couple of years now. Not even the last couple of years. I mean, the last couple of weeks. I mean, remember how they started the season and everybody was just raving about what they were able to do on the offensive side of the football. Rodgers, they lost Jordy Nelson in the preseason, but it looked like that offense didn't really miss a beat. But then they had that game in Denver, and that's when things started to kind of turn. And it it turned, you know, it started up front. They got some pressure, that Denver pass rush. Rodgers had to move more in the pocket. Then you start to see things added to that, like the receivers that can't get separation. Now throws that were kind of off the mark, but there was enough room to make the catch. Now you can't make the reception because you can't get separation throws off the mark. So, yeah, it, they've, they've kind of faltered a little bit here. Yeah, they had the win against Detroit, but there are still some question marks. And, you know, Aaron brought up a lot of really good points about what they need to do on the offensive side of the ball to really get to where they need to go. Yeah, definitely. And I want to jump back to uh, week 12, or week 13, I'm sorry. I keep thinking we're in week 12. I want to jump back to week 13 now. And we do have the Harry Stamper all-go offensive play of the week. And, Mark, we're going to a team that I don't believe we've looked at this year, have we? I can't. I, I don't think we've really looked at them, at least on the podcast. I've written about them a little bit um, because of you know my my love for quarterbacks, especially rookie quarterbacks. That's right. This week's Harry Stamper offensive play, offensive play of the game is of the week. Actually, excuse me, is brought to you by Stamper Oil. I'll go no quit. And this week we get to look at the Tennessee Titans, Chuck. The Tennessee Titans. 
I like the Tennessee Titans. I like what I saw from Marcus Mariota last week, and I know that you did too in particular. This one play here, what exactly happened? Right. Well, the play we're talking about, it's a, a 47-yard touchdown. It's a catch-and-run from Dorio Green-Beckham. And what I liked here is we talked about, and we just talked about it with Aaron, all the information that a, a quarterback or a player has going into a play that they have to kind of process and digest and go through reads and things like that. And here's a situation where it looks like the coverage will be one thing, but it's rolled to something else at the snap. Mariota, they had, he has a double in route from the right with one receiver who's inside and then Dorio Green Beckham, the rookie wide receiver out of Oklahoma on the outside. Mariota thinks it looks like cover two, but he's got some indications to him pre-snap, particularly the, you know, the weak side safety looks to be cheating down a bit. The Jaguars roll their coverage into cover three buzz, which is a coverage where one of the safeties drops into an inside hook zone like a linebacker typically does. Mariota takes a snap, executes his five-step drop, and as he starts to climb the pocket, another great trait from a young quarterback, he sees that coverage rolling, so he knows that on that side of the play, that slot side of the field, he's got those two in routes. The safety kind of collapses on the inside one, and there's just a narrow enough window for him to squeeze in that outer in cut from Doriel Green Beckham. This what? is also a great play from the wide receiver. He knows he's going to get hit. He takes a shot from the free safety who breaks off the inside route when the ball is thrown. But he delivers a blow himself, and he shows you some nice play strength, something that you'd like to see from a wide receiver, knocks the safety to the turf, and then outruns everybody to the end zone. It's just, you know, this was a game between Jacksonville and Tennessee, not the two best teams in the NFC, in the AFC by any stretch of the imagination, but it's two young teams with some young talent. Jacksonville has got Bortles. They've got some young receivers there that look really good this season. Yep. Um, so it was nice to see some young guys get some run. Nice game between these two teams. I bet a lot of people outside of Jacksonville and Tennessee didn't watch it, but you should take a look at it, see what these young teams are doing, especially this, these young offensive cores. There's some good stuff on both sides of the team, both team from both teams there. With regards to Marcus Mariota, you looked at a lot of his film during his last year in college. The types of reads and the types of plays that he's running now, are these anything that he was seeing at all in college, or is this all development that's just happening at the NFL level here? There are, there are definitely elements of stuff that he ran at Oregon, and there are definitely some new elements as he's made the transition to Tennessee and what they're doing with the Titans' offense. I spent a lot of time when I was looking at Marcus Mariota last spring, more than I'd care to admit because it's probably embarrassing. But there were flashes that he showed while he was in college that he could do things like work progressions, make anticipation throws, throw receivers open. You had to look for him. You had to dig deep and find them because, again, that Oregon offense is a spread look, a lot of you know read option, run pass option type stuff where he's got limited reads. But there are times when it was take a drop, read a full field, take a drop, make an anticipation throw, take a drop, work through progressions. And he showed that he could do that, which is why Tennessee felt comfortable taking him second overall. They weren't going to do that, probably, I don't think, if they weren't comfortable he could make that move. And then they've incorporated both some collegiate elements to their offense as well as giving him a play like this where it's a little bit different design, something he's not typically run before in college. But again, 
makes the reads, works through the progressions, climbs the pocket, and delivers a nice throw. Let's talk a little bit just about some of the things he still needs to work on. It's not to say that these are going to be lifelong problems, but when you look at the tape from him, the things that really are critical to his development to the next level, where are the areas that you'd like to see improvement from him in order to make that jump and be able to really say, okay, I am now an established quarterback in the NFL? I think play speed more than anything, and it's one of those things that, you know, whenever a rookie comes into the NFL, the first thing they say is, man, the game is so much faster because, you know, the athletes are better, the coverages are better, you know, everything happens just just a much faster pace. And that's accelerated when you're a quarterback because if you think of the things that a quarterback has to do just in the pre-snap phase, getting guys lined up right, reading the coverage, you know, things that Marcus Mariota may not have done at Oregon. Um, there's a lot of information to process. And then once the play gets going, everything happens at a much faster pace. He's making the right reads. He's doing a good job. There was another play in this game where he looked a receiver off, made a nice touchdown throw over the middle after looking to the outside. So he's doing those things nice, but it's just speeding up the process in his head. So when you hear about a player saying, oh, the game's coming to me much more slowly now. It seems like everything's happening in slow motion. I got a better feel for the game. That's where he needs to go. That's where you know all young quarterbacks need to get to because you know when things are flying around and you, you feel rushed, you're, everything's speeding up in your head, you can make mistakes. But when you're comfortable enough with the game, with the scheme, and what, what your eyes are telling you, what your mind's telling you that you're seeing, and you trust everything that your eyes are seeing – the game comes to you in a much, much better way, and you can make better plays for your offense. Yeah, and this is something that we've talked about even with regards to how so many quarterbacks today go from college offenses where they don't necessarily use the same concepts as they do in the pros, and now you're being asked to do something new and unfamiliar, and the game can seem even faster in that fashion. So it's always interesting to see how that works out in real time, and I always value your input on it. But I do want to go to our second guest of the day now. We are joined by Dane Burns from On the 50-Yard Line and probably has the best Twitter handle on Twitter of mm-hmm. It's a Black Guy. Dane, yeah. I appreciate you joining us. I appreciate you guys for having me. How you guys doing today? We are doing very well. And, Dane, I know that uh, you know I've, I've listened to some of your stuff on your podcast. I've read through your website, but – a lot of our listeners and a lot of our readers may not be familiar with everything that you do, so why don't you give them just a little bit of a background on yourself and how you got into doing this? All right, so basically, I've been doing sports writing for a couple of years now. I'm still pretty young. I'm actually about um, 22, turn 23 at the end of the month. But I started on the 50-yard line earlier this year, and really just the point of the website is, you know, I love writing, but also because I feel like I've immersed myself into you know, the football life, football culture. You know, I, I love you. I love you guys' work. I, I listen to a lot of other podcasts and reading articles always. I, I like to try to dispel myths and, like, football narratives. I like to write about them, I like to tweet about them, talk about them on the podcast. So, like, really, we just get to, like, try to give the truth. Like, you know, I look at football from a unique perspective, my perspective, and um, I just try to spread to people what I know. So talk to me in terms of some of the top stories that you're looking at right now. Obviously, it's you know it's it's been a pretty chaotic NFL year. You've had a number of teams that have you look at some of the teams that have underperformed this year. We talked earlier about the Philadelphia Eagles. We've talked about how the Packers have been weak recently. What are some of the big things that have really surprised you in recent weeks? In recent weeks, um, quite frankly, uh, 
even though I don't want to say that I'm completely surprised, I'm, I'm surprised it's coming together so fast with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, you know. During the pre-draft process, I was never one of the people that felt it had to be either or, that only Marcus Mariota or Jameis Winston could both be, that they could be great. Only, um, I always felt from the start that both of them could be. It didn't have to be either or thing. And I'm surprised that the Tampa Bay Bucks are actually in the playoff hunt right now. And, um, and you know, just, just looking at the NFC South in general, like I can't completely say I'm surprised the way things have folded, um, unfolded so far this year. You know, when the Falcons were five and zero, I never quite took them as seriously as most people thought because you could see the flaws in them, and just to see how badly they've fallen off the cliff. You know, you see, you know, as bad as it is for them right now, you can still look at them and tell that all right, they got themselves a good head coach, heading in the right direction. Um, offensively, they got issues. Uh, that's something else that we're working on right now. We're actually going to have a special podcast about that. It's Kyle Shanahan and how he has a track record of failing, like just halfway through the season. Like he's had, had teams that have started off hot. If you look at the Redskins from a few years ago, they ended hot, but they started off pretty badly. Or last year with the Browns, how they started off hot, and then everything just, you know, went to hell towards the end of the year. That's something we're looking at. You know, we just. You know, basically, something else about the website, you know, you have your big general storylines. We like to look at the underlying storylines. So, there's just stuff that we like to focus on. Dan, one of the things you've written about recently, you talked about the Houston Texans, who started off the season just about as badly as you could, but in recent weeks started to really ride that defense, and that defense starting to come together and potentially leading towards a playoff bid in that AFC South. Talk to me about what you've seen there from them. From them, like. It, it, the defense is coming along, and that's what's been holding. That, I, I don't want to say that was what was holding them back. Is just they had a lot of a moving parts at the beginning of the year, and what I'd like for people to look at a whole lot more is okay. So, you know, during the first half of the year, there was just talk about this is why JJ White never needed to be in the MVP conversation last year because you know a defensive player can impact the team the way that um you know like a quarterback can. And to an extent, that's true. But if you look at what White has done last year and what he's been able to do this year, you know, his success, it really dictates his defense. And it's not just him anymore. You know, they, they missed out on having Clowney last year because he had the knee surgery. He missed a lot of time. But although the stats are more specifically the stats, and they say that Clowney is, you know, being completely impactful, having Clowney on the field is helping J.J. White out even more. And it's bringing things all together. You know, it's not just David White. It's not just the David Young Clown. You got Whitney Merciless. It's a lot of young guys they begin to incorporate. You know, they've taken a lot of snaps from some of the older guys, like uh, Stacey Raheem Moore. They've also gotten um, Vince Wilford is taking, um, taking less snaps. And they're putting some of the younger guys on the field, like Christian Colbinson, guys of that nature. And that's what's really helping because when you get the, the younger guys, you get more athleticism, you get more speed on the field, that helps. You know, the Texans at the beginning of the year, they were getting so many – Big plays, and if you look at that Miami Dolphins game when it was forty-one to zero at halftime, Ryan Tannehill didn't do much work. I want to say um, of all his yards, he threw about twelve percent of them through the air. You know, a lot of them were short passes, and they were taking them distance. And when you put younger guys in, they got the speed to chase after them. You won't get as many big plays. That's been a big help for them. You know, the offense will come along. You know, they're still having issues running the ball. The offense isn't perfect by any means necessary. Actually. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins a bust for most days, though. But as long as they can do enough and complement that defense, the Houston Texans will contend for that AFC South position crown. 
Dan, I wanted to ask you about a quarterback that we've talked about a little bit on the show, and that's Teddy Bridgewater. Minnesota looked to get off to a good start this year, and he looked to be pretty comfortable in the pocket, but he's taken a step back in recent weeks. What have you seen from Teddy when you've gotten a chance to watch the Vikings? You know, one thing about Teddy when he was coming out of uh, Louisville was that he was not really a scrambler. Like, he wanted to be a pocket quarterback. He wanted to play quarterback in the pocket. But because the, uh, the Vikings have such a, uh, a pretty bad offensive line, you know, they're taking some blows and some injuries they received during the preseason and along the way. He's out there running for his life a lot. And so it, it, it weighs on him. He's still a young quarterback. He has a lot of, he has a lot of things, uh, you know, has a lot of time to improve on his things, but he can't get comfortable in the pocket. It's going to be an issue. And one thing I noticed with the Vikings, they don't use Kyle Rudolph enough, and then they should work him into the passing game a whole lot more. And as far as I'm concerned, Stephon Diggs is really the only wide receiver that Teddy Bridgewater has. He's a rookie himself. So, you know, it's a lot of times like when you look at they just play Seattle, and I want to say Sherman held him um, to about two catches for 20 yards, somewhere around that nature. And um, he just doesn't have quite the weapons to develop. Right now, but you know they're taking him along slowly. He's not losing games for them. Um, he's still pretty. He, he tries to be careful with the ball. He throws some pretty bad picks at sometimes, though. But I, I really, um, I really like the future that he has ahead of him. He's never going to be a superstar quarterback. He's not going to be the quarterback to carry you. But he's a quarterback that I feel that you can win with. A quarterback that you can win a Super Bowl with. You won't win because of him. But he'll definitely be a major part that plays in the uh, entire machine. Very good. Well, Dane. Appreciate you coming on. If anyone wants to go in read any of your work, what's the best place for them to do that? Uh, you check out otfyl.com. Uh, we update a lot of stuff. Actually, before I got on with you guys, just put out an article about Mercury Morris. You know, he annually has things to say about undefeated teams. He has some more comments about the 12 and 0 Panthers. I felt my, I, you know, I put my opinion on that, so you guys can check that out. Also, if you go to Twitter, two Twitter pages. You have my personal Twitter page, which is it's a black guy. And then if you go to the, the page for the website, on the 50-yard line, we're there. Check us out on both. We're on Facebook, be on the 50-yard uh, fifty yard line, SoundCloud, Stitcher Radio, iTunes, on the 50-yard line podcast, we're everywhere. Outstanding. Well, Dane, thanks again for coming on with us. I appreciate you guys for having me. You guys have a good day. All right, you too. Dane Burns from On the 50-Yard Line. You can also follow him on Twitter, as he said, at It's a Black Guy. Mark, we had previously had to push this segment back a little bit just because we actually went a little too long earlier in the show, but we do need to continue to at least attempt to educate people. I don't know if we do a great job with it, but let's talk package plays. This is our glossary term of the day. Package plays, and this is actually something that Aaron Nagler kind of spurred this uh, glossary entry. Uh, he tweeted about it a week or so ago, but this is a concept you're seeing a lot more on Sundays. You had seen it you know, you see it every college football Saturday, but now we're seeing NFL offenses incorporated as well. And basically, it's a way for an offense to stretch a defense horizontally, give the quarterback a number of options on a given play, and the quarterback chooses, you know, which option he's going to take based on what he sees from the defense pre-snap. So, give me an what, example of something that you would that you would see as a package play, for example. You know, the standard sort of package play design is you've got the quarterback and the running back will meet at the mesh point in the backfield. You know, the quarterback will get up to the line of scrimmage and will decide what he's going to do based upon the defensive front. First of all, if he sees a stacked box, then he's going to go fake the handoff to the running back. Then he'll throw 
typically one of two pass routes. You'll have a slot formation, say, to the right side of the field, and then the single receiver split to the left. That's a common look. And you'll have the single receiver run a curl route or a hitch route on the left, and you'll set up a bubble screen to the right. So you've got two passing options there. So if the defense stacks the box, you fake the run at the mesh point and then throw one of those two depending on whatever the quarterback's been told, either you know in the week leading up to the game or even on the sideline before that drive starts. What makes this easier to run than a traditional offense? Because for someone like myself, look, I'm a kicker. I don't make decisions. All I do is someone tells me to kick and I ask how far. Quarterback, what exactly is it that makes this easier than a traditional offense? It's not so much that it makes it easier. I, th- I think the distinction also is that it, with the number of options built into these designs, you've got on a given package play, the quarterback can hand the ball off to the running back, reading that defensive end, and if he crashes down on the potential quarterback keeper, quarterback hands the ball off. If they go with the run and play and the defensive end reads the running back, then the quarterback keeps it. I mean, that's two options built in right there. But then if you've got the stacked box, you can throw it to one side or the other of the field. So it allows the quarterback to take advantage of just not just the numbers, but also the personnel. I mean, in the package play entry we have, there's an example where, you know, Aaron Rodgers, we talked about the Packers a bit on this show, fakes a handoff and throws a quick little seam route to an inside receiver. And you've got that, you know, the linebacker who's trying to is this, read it. Is this a run? Is this a pass? He takes just one or two steps towards the potential run and Rodgers with that quick delivery gets the ball out and it's just an easy seven eight sometimes 10 yard gain and you just are able to exploit the numbers and the matchups maybe a little bit more effective than in a traditional offense okay I've got one more for you here and this is going to be a challenging one all right all right I'm ready man does the instance and really the inclusion of package plays in the college game and how frequently they're being used does that contribute to the lack of development for pro prospects? Oh, boy. That's a fun question. <laughs> loaded one to end the show it's with. It's a loaded one to end the show. You know, I, you, you know my thoughts on this whole, like, quarterback crisis. Thing, and I think it, you know, and we've had Dan Hatman on who's talked about, you know, the NFL needs to stop using the college football system as a developmental league. Looking at packaged plays and how we've just talked about them and how we've described them, Do they prepare a quarterback to understand the pro game the way that you typically expect one to, such as reading the Mike linebacker and working through progressions? No. But do they they prepare a quarterback to read a defense in some way, shape, or form, have options, and work through progressions, even though they're a little different than what we typically understand progressions to be? It's not just, you know, deep route intermediate route, check down. It's not like that. It's run, pass, which pass am I going to throw, which option am I going to take on the run game? It's different, but you're still training a quarterback to make decisions, read a defense, and work through sort of a progression-type scheme. It's not what we typically understand progressions to be. It's still training a quarterback to read a defense and work through a system of options. So when you take a guy like Marcus Mariota with a second overall pick, and he's been running a lot of packaged plays, you incorporate that a little bit into your offense, but you also know that he at least has the decision-making capabilities and the ability to process information quickly, and you build traditional offensive elements into your offense. And his transition is probably the case study for how coaches and how organizations can handle the influx of spread type quarterbacks. We're in draft season right now. 
Paxton Lynch is a name that's near the top of offensive boards. He's a guy that runs a spread type scheme. Same thing with Jared Goff, kind of an air raid type scheme. So we're going to be talking about this a lot more, I bet. But that's kind of the template, I think, just from you know one guy's opinion on how it should be managed. Good stuff. We'll pull you off the hot seat now. How about that? Uh, it's, it's nice and cool from where I'm sitting now. It was a little toasty on that chair. little toasty. So, folks, we are out for the day. We will be back next week on the next edition of Inside the Pile on the podcast. For Chuck and Mark, we're heading out. You can follow us on Facebook uh, at facebook.com slash inside the pylon. Like us on Twitter at ITPylon. Visit us at insidethepylon.com, and we'll see you next week. <laughs>